How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful for all that you supply for us and all that you provide for us. You've given us every resource that we could, that we need in order to live the Christian life. We have the indwelling and the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon of Scripture. We have, uh, in this 21st century, a collection of solid biblical teaching that extends back over, over 20 or over 2,000 years. And, Father, we have more than we could ever imagine. And in this abundance, unfortunately, too often we treat it casually and lightly. But, Father, we pray that we might recognize, as Paul exhorts his readers at, uh, in his time, that the, de- that the night is drawing to a close, it's advancing, and the day is drawing near, and we need to redouble our efforts to focus on our spiritual life and our spiritual growth because we never know what may transpire. And even if it's not the coming of our Lord at the rapture, even if it's death, even if it's some national catastrophe or worldwide calamity, we know that we need to be prepared. And when the time comes, it's too late to be prepared. And so, Father, strengthen us with your word tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I want to begin with the current event update. Uh, everybody should be aware of the fact that we're in our third day of what is called Operation Protective Edge in Israel. One reason I want to do this is to sort of alert people as to what's going on. There will be an email going out after Bible class with some links to different uh, websites, news organizations, uh, the Times of Israel, Eretz Shava. Uh, Ynet News, several others that you can go to to get updates on what's going on in Israel. And if you are, are a, really interested in finding out what's going on, there is an application, an app you can download on your cell phone uh, called, uh, what is the name? Uh, it's not Code Red. That's what I thought it was. It is Red Alert Israel. And it uh, if you activate that, the siren will go off every time there is a uh, a rocket that is being launched at Israel. So we're going to have a little uh, test case tonight, and I'm going to set my phone up here, and we're going to see how many times rockets are fired at Israel during the next hour. There have been over 400 that have been fired since the beginning. You read different figures, and I did send an email out about an hour ago to someone uh, asking why there are some different figures. According to some news agency reports, the IDF says that over 200 rockets have been launched by Hamas in the last uh, or since the start of this, and yet I heard on an APAC conference call Tuesday, and I read that it was at 330 at the beginning of the conference call, which lasted an hour, and it was like 345 by the end of the conference call. Today it's over 400. So I don't know why uh, there are some differences in the numbers, but we're living in a time of uh, intensified danger internationally, and sadly we live in the time of a president who is a do-nothing uh, president for and and it's very dangerous. So I just wanted to update you a little bit on the situation, what is going on. We have a group that's going to Israel in November. That's four months away. In the in the Middle East, that's like four lifetimes. A lot of things can happen between uh, between now and then. And so I want to educate them a little bit. We have more people from the immediate local congregation going on this trip, or a higher percentage of people on this trip. Uh, going uh, from Houston 
than we've had in the past. Usually we have a lot of people who are live streamers and others that go on the trip, but we have a higher percentage. So I want to say just a couple of things in terms of an overview. The problem that that is going on now, as with the, uh, the, as with the previous war that was a couple of years ago, is Hamas and the control that Hamas has over the Gaza Strip. To understand the nature of this, I want to just cover a couple of gr- quick points, is that Hamas was founded in 1987 during the second, I mean, during the first Intifada, and it's a wing of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, which is a radical uh, Muslim group, and they're seeking to establish, uh, uh, are seeking to call for jihad and to establish um, Sharia law where, wherever they go. Of course, they took over in Egypt for a while before that fell apart for them, fortunately. And now Egypt recognizes the grave danger they face because uh, Gaza, the Gaza Strip is really on their uh, northeast border as well. And so this is a problem. But Hamas, in their charter, uh, quotes from the Quran in Surah 3110, you are the best nation that is Islam. You are the best nation that has been raised up unto mankind. And they believe that their mission is to destroy the Jews. And uh, one of their leaders in an interview with Al-Aqsa TV said on December 31st, 2008, regarding the Jews, our business with them is only through bombs and guns. In an article in Al-Rasala, which is the official newspaper of Hamas. Uh, Hamas promotes the extermination, complete annihilation of all the Jews, and the complete and total destruction of Israel. In that interview, uh, <clears throat> Hamas stated, the Hamas representative stated, we find more than one condemnation and denunciation of the resistance operations and bombings carried out by Hamas and the Palestinian resistance branches. Eventually, everyone will know that we did this only because our Lord commanded so. I did it not of my own accord, that's a quote from the Quran, and so that people will know that the extermination of Jews is good for the inhabitants of the world. So this is their focal point, and they've never backed off from this, and they've never uh, been willing to do, sign any kind of peace accord, and they never will, because they would have to compromise this end game. There's a, we've had a little uh, uh, pamphlet, like a track size, on the Hamas charter here that um, uh, one of the organizations, who is that? Israel, mm, it's not Friends of Israel, it's um, the one that uh, Vita was with, um, Stand, Stand with Israel. Uh, stand with Israel, that they have. That's an excellent little summation of, of Hamas. In 2006, they won a democratic election and gained control of Gaza, and they took control, actual complete control, on the 14th of June in 2007. Before that, there had been numerous uh, Israeli communities in Gaza, but they pulled out. Uh, they pulled out all the Israelis in 2005 and 2006. So here's a map showing Gaza in green, and then the red area is is Israel, and this shows the range of these the various missiles that Hamas has. The Qassam missile, which is a short range, has a 17-kilometer range, and this is indicated by this first dotted line. So if they're firing from Gaza, they can't get as far as Tel Aviv, but anything close to the Gaza Strip within 17 kilometers, which is about 12 miles, is uh, fair game for a Qassam. Then you have the Grad, which is a 48-kilometer range. This can reach Beersheba and as far as Tel Aviv. The M75 has a range of 75 kilometers, which includes Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And then the M302 has a range of 160 kilometers. This is new for this war. Uh, the IDF intelligence thought they had 100, and it turns out they have about 400. They fired uh, a, probably 20 or 30 of these. They have nothing's hit. It has really hit the target. Apparently, there have been no casualties in Israel. It hasn't. Um, there's been minimal. Uh, property damage. Many of them have missed completely, landed out in fields or wherever, 
and uh, many have been shot shot down. In much of the area in Israel, in this in that in this area especially inside that that first dotted line, Israelis live within 15 seconds uh, have 15 seconds to get to a bomb shelter, and so when they hear the alarms go off. They have only 15 seconds to get out of the shower and get dressed, to just pick up the kids and get out the door and get into a bomb shelter. And they live with this as a, as a daily reality in those areas. And one of the areas that has been hit the most is Sterot. Went there on a trip last year. And this is a picture of one of the bomb shelters that they have. There's numerous shelters like this around the area. In some areas I read yesterday in an article in, um, in the uh, Israel My Glory magazine, a lot of you read that, but in this issue, the July-August 2014 issue, which just came out a couple of days ago, there's a great article in there that uh, Friends of Israel has set up a, an autonomous um, or, uh, nonprofit organization that is taking donations to help uh, contribute to the FIDF, the Friends of the IDF, and a number of other organizations that are helping helping Israelis out. And in that article, they mentioned that they had bought uh, several underground shelters that were put in place to some villages that were uh, very, and some of the kibbutz that are very close to the Gaza area. In some of these areas, that because of the expense of bomb, building bomb shelters and because of the size of these communities, they just have uh, steel pipes like big drainage pipes that the people go out and run into. That's all they have have for protection. This is a shot of this outside the city hall in Sterot uh, and the police station, which are all the same building. They have a this rack in the back parking lot where they've uh, just stashed all these all the debris from the rockets after they have blown up. So that's a picture. Of that, and of course, what has given Israel a new lease on life in many ways is the Iron Dome uh, project, which shoots down these incoming uh, incoming missiles, and they have a, a success rate of 90 percent. They have shot down 90 percent of the missiles that they have aimed at in this in this recent engagement. I think I, I hear hints from people I've talked to or heard give presentations who work with Iron Dome. And they say it's even higher. What's interesting is tomorrow night, I'm going to, or Saturday night, I'm going to have dinner uh, with a man who was the uh, project officer for Israel's satellite program, and he was a project officer for their aero missile defense system. They have three levels of defense. They have the Iron Dome, which hits low-level, low-flying missiles. Then the next one is called David Sling, and the highest one that, that takes out uh, ICBMs that might be coming in is the uh, aero defense system. And so that will be interesting to see what I learned from that. This is a video of the Iron Dome at work. It's a short video. I just thought I would show this. It's from the New York Times. What we're Times. looking at is basically one of the five Iron Dome missile batteries. Its goal is to, as much as possible, intercept uh, rockets which have been launched towards the cities of Israel to intercept them in the middle of the way, in the air, in order to protect the people. This video is from the last fight a couple of years ago. Hmm? We had to. We have a buffering problem. Oh, well. That was a great video. You can go home and watch it on the Internet. Just uh, Google Iron Dome, and you can watch watch several of them. I just thought I would show you that. But I guess I got overridden. So people who are live streaming, we now can empathize with them because we, too, have uh, buffering problems. Okay, um, one thing I want, one comment I want to make before we get into our, our text this evening is that I know the people who are going to Israel or they have family members who are going to go on the Israel trip are beginning to worry a little bit. This is, this is four lifetimes between now and, and November. And, and the war will probably be over 
long before we make our trip over there in November. In fact, if you look at all of Israel's wars since the War for Independence in 1948, they fought six wars. In 1956, the Sinai War lasted eight days. In uh, 1967, the Six-Day War lasted six days. Very good. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War lasted 19 days. In 1982, the first Lebanon War began on the 6th of June in 1982 and lasted, I mean, the fighting was mostly in Lebanon. They attacked into Lebanon to take out a lot of uh, Hezbollah uh, fighters, and uh, there was very little fighting in Israel. It was mostly in Lebanon. That lasted through the month of June, but they didn't pull their forces out until sometime in August or early September, but the main fight was in June, one month or less than one month. Um, in the second Lebanon War, which was in August of 2006, it began in, on the 12th of July and ended on the 14th of August, lasted for 34 days. And then the most recent uh, fight was Operation Cast Lead, which was from uh, the end of December in 2008, from the 27th of December 2008 until the 18th of January 2009, and that was a 23-day conflict. So we look at an 8-day, 6-day, 19-day, uh, one month to maybe three months, depending on how you want to count the first Lebanon war, a 34-day war and a 23-day war. So these are all very, very short. So this is the this started on the 8th of June, I mean 8th of July, and this will probably be uh, over with before the middle of August, and, and that's my, I'm not pre, pre, um, predicting, I'm just going to give a little guess based on past history. So this, by the time we go to Israel in November, this will be ancient history. All right, open your Bibles with me to Romans 13. Romans 13, and I want we're looking at the, really the last three verses in Romans 13, verses 12 through 14, which summarizes very quickly in these three verses the Christian life. This is one of the great passages related to the Christian life that we find in the New Testament, and it uses vocabulary that is common to these other key passages in Ephesians and Colossians uh, and James and several other passages. Focusing on 12 through 14, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now, to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to understand this night and day imagery, which I talked about in the last lesson, but that was two weeks ago, and also the imagery of casting off and putting on. That's the real key terminology. And so I just want to set this up so that you can get this graphic in your head because this is one of the great graphics to describe the Christian life and to understand the distinctions that I'm going to talk about. We have these two circles that I put up here in white to indicate light. And on the left, we have our positional reality in Christ. This is what every believer has in Christ. We enter into that positional reality when we trust in Christ. At that instant, Romans 6.3 says we're identified, are baptized. That's the sense of baptism is identification. We're baptized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So we become a new creature in Christ. This is fundamental. In fact, there's, this was so emphasized by uh, some groups, especially the Keswick or Victorious Life Group in the late 19th century, that it picked up a, a name that it was called the Identification Truths. And unfortunately, those who emphasize identification truths that we, in terms of our identity in Christ, fail to recognize the experiential realities on the right-hand side. And the right hand describes our day-to-day -day experience. We're to walk by the Spirit. We are to be filled by means of the Spirit. It's called walking in the light. So on the left-hand side, our position is, our identification in terms of our family identification with Christ is we are sons of light. 
That's who we are. That's the identification in God's family. On the right-hand side, we're to walk by the light. That's what we're supposed to do. Sometimes we don't walk by the light. We live like we're in part of somebody else's family. Perhaps you had a father or a mother, and when you were growing up and you did something that was very out of character for your family, they said, well, how can you be a member of our family if you do something like that? Well, they don't mean that literally that they're kicking you out of the family. They're just telling you that that we have a standard of living in our family, and that doesn't fit it. And you need to live like you're a member of our family, not like you're a member of somebody else's family. Now, when we walk by the light, we often sin. And when we sin, we stop walking by the light, and we're walking in darkness. This is talking about our day-to-day experience. And the Bible describes this as walking according to the flesh or according to the sin nature. Also uses the term walking in darkness in contrast to walking, walking in the light. And the only way to recover from this then is through 1 John 1 9, which is how we understand that as a confession passage. Now you have to realize there are some people, some theologians in Christian life, Uh, notably those who hold to a covenant type of theology who want to take this as a salvation verse, that we confess our sin and we admit that we're sinners at the point of faith in Christ, and that's when we're cleansed of all sin. That's not what 1 John 1 is talking about. 1 John 1 is talking about this experiential uh, reality. So last time I talked about the fact that in Romans 13, 12, we have two uh, pairs of words, uh, antonym, uh, two pairs of words that we need to understand. They're uh, anton- antonyms for each other, night and darkness and day and light. And this is typical of the imagery that's used in the Scripture to describe uh, those who are in relationship to God because God is light. That describes his perfect righteousness and holiness, and in him there is no darkness at all, John says in the first chapter of John. Now, there are different ways in which this light and day imagery is used. I ran through these last time. I want to just pop through them quickly tonight as a reminder. In John 12:36, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, while you have the light, and he's talking to his disciples and others who are unbelievers, while you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. That's talking about our position in Christ. He's talking to unbelievers. If you believe, then you will become a son of the light. That's positional. It's talking about the right side. First Peter 2.9, we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our position in Christ. We are in the kingdom of light, he says later on. In Acts 26, 18, uh, Paul describes it this way. He says that, that we have turned from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. So have been sanctified is a perfect passive participle, which indicates a past completed action. So this is talking about positional sanctification in Acts 26:18. Acts I mean Colossians 1:13 talks about the fact that at salvation we were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So again, this is our position in Christ, moving from darkness to light. 1 Thessalonians 5:5 5, 5 says that we are all sons of light and sons of the day. That's talking about our position we are not of the night nor of darkness. But in Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's positional. And then he says, walk as children of light. So that moves us from talking about our position and identity as as sons of light to the experience of walking as children of light. That tells us that Ephesians 5 is not talking about our positional realities in Christ. It's talking about and challenging us in terms of our day-to-day walk with the Lord. So once again, we're back to our chart here that the left side is talking about who we are 
as members of the body of Christ, those who've been baptized into Christ, and the right side is focusing on that experiential truth, that experiential reality of the necessity of walking by the light and constantly recovering from sin through the use of 1 John 1, 9. We are to walk in the light as he is in the light. So this is what 1 John 1, 7 says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Notice there's a, there's a priority here. What comes first is our relationship with God. Walking in the light is enjoying our fellowship with God. It's not a static thing. Often we use a, a speak idiomatically and say we have fellowship. Uh, fellowship is something that is a partnership. It's something that's enjoyed. It's something that is dynamic. It's not just static. And so really we, we walk in the light and we enjoy fellowship with God. Uh, and as a result of having fellowship with God by walking in the light, we then can have fellowship with one another. And the basis for this is that the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, cleanses us from all sin. Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for all sin. This is what uh, Jesus is talking about in John twelve forty six. He said, I've come as a light unto, into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So this word abide in, in Johannine writings is very important because it describes that ongoing fellowship. It's not talking about uh, salvation. Now, if you're, if you're reading somebody and they're from the lordship, have a lordship view of salvation, then they interpret abiding as equivalent to salvation. Those who are saved abide. Those who don't abide aren't saved, are never were saved. You just thought you were. Uh, this is how they understand. In fact, in the NET Bible, which has a lot of good notes in it, but a lot of them are questionable. It was at the editors of the NET Bible were mostly, and especially the New Testament was exclusively at the time it was done, members of the New Testament faculty at Dallas Theological Seminary. And in the uh, one of the note notes in one of the verses in either First John one or in First John two, it talks about the fact that those who abide that this is referring to those who are in salvation. People have an elitist view of the Christians that some Christians abide and others don't. It's completely wrong. That's what's said in their, in their mar- marginal note. Uh, we would completely disagree with that view of the Christian life. So Jesus is emphasizing that ongoing relationship. This is uh, another way in which Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5.14. A lot of the verses that I'm going to be looking at tonight are in Ephesians. So let's just turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and some of these are going to get a little bit technical because they may read the same in English, but there's actually a difference in the way they're set up in the Greek. In Ephesians 5, The focus is on the Christian walk. This is what Paul introduces, going back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, excuse me, chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 4, 5, and 6, Paul focuses on the fact that we are to walk. So all of this is about the Christian walk not our possessions in Christ. When he gets to chapter 5, he continues this. For example, in verse 2, he says, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then he goes on to talk about um, that we are to walk as, as uh, walk in the light, Verse 8, walk as children of light. So the focal point here is on our daily walk. So we need to wake up and be alert. This is what verse 14 says, awake you who sleep. That's the believer who is asleep in Christ. He's just out of fellowship. Arise from the dead. That's talking about 
the carnal life in terms of living like a spiritually dead person. He says, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Here the light metaphor is talking about something a little different. It's talking about the illumination in the Christian way of life. So Romans 13.12 uses this imagery of night and day. When Jesus was on the earth, he said, the day is, it's now daytime, but the night is coming. The, the coming of the night is when the Lord left. Now, Paul is talking about the same church age as the night, which is progressing, but the day is almost here. The day is being used, again, to refer to Christ's presence upon the earth. So I pointed out the importance of imminency that lies behind that verse, that we expect Christ at any moment. No sign must take place before Christ comes. So it is near. Uh, it's at hand. It could happen at any moment. And then he says, as a result of that, he draws a conclusion. If Christ could come at any moment, then that means that cer certain actions should take place in our life. We should cast off the works of darkness, and we should put on the armor of light. Now, casting off is the word apotithemi, which is used in a literal sense to talk about removing clothes. When you get ready to go to bed at night, you take your clothes off, you get ready for bed. When you get up in the morning, you put your clothes on and you get ready to go out. So that's the idea of taking something off and putting something on, and this is clear in the vocabulary that's used there. The word that is used in this passage is in duo, which means to dress or to clothe, in contrast to apatithemi, which means to put off or to take off or to remove something. Now, these two words are used a lot of places in the New Testament when talking about the Christian life, but they're used in two different senses. And it's important, you're never going to get this from the English because it's based on Greek grammar as to how they're used. The same words can be used, but how they're used grammatically makes a difference. So we'll start with that which is the most familiar to us, and that is relating it to the whole concept of confession of sin and recovery. James 1.21 says, Therefore, lay aside... See, I put the word first in there to give you the sense of what this means in the Greek. Therefore, first lay aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness, I think the King James translated this, the superfluity of naughtiness, whatever that is, or the excess of evil. We are to lay that aside. It's a aorist participle. Lay it aside and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, they're already saved. That was clear from previous verses in James 1, and he's addressing them continuously through the epistle as believers, my brethren or my beloved brethren. And earlier he had talked about the fact that they were, uh, they were already, uh, already saved, that they were already, uh, had, had, that God had already uh, saved them. And now he's talking to them as how saved people should live. And so he says, first lay aside, then receive. In 1 Peter 2.1, we have the same verb, apatithemi, for the removal of clothes. Therefore, lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And then in verse 2, he says, desire, that's the command, the sincere milk of the word. Now, if you just look at this in English, you might think that, first of all, you have to really clean up your life before you can receive the word. You have to really uh, repent and have a lot of remorse, and you have to morally clean everything up before you can t take in the word. That's not what's implied here. If we look at this verse, there's two actions that are indicated by these, by by the word lay aside and then receive. Lay aside, I broke this down grammatically using this slide. The command apathitithemi to remove something is an aorist participle. 
In an aorist participle, the action precedes the action of the main verb in any aorist participle. But when the main verb is an imperative, which is what I put under the line, when the main verb is an imperative, then the aorist participle can be stating the prerequisite action for fulfilling the command. So the, you have an aorist imperative preceded by an aorist participle. The aorist participle is describing what is termed by grammarians a participle of antecedent circumstances. And there are five features that are listed that are usually all present in order for you to be able to identify a participle as one of attendant circumstance. The first is that the tense of the participle is aorist. The second is that the tense of the main verb is aorist. Third, the mood of the main verb is usually imperative but might be indicative. So the first three fit. We have an aorist participle. We have an aorist main verb, and we have an aorist imperative main verb. The fourth feature is that the participle will will precede the main verb both in word order and in time. That's exactly what we have here. The fifth characteristic of a participle of attendant circumstance is the one that doesn't apply, and that is that attendant circumstance participles most frequently occur in narrative literature. Well, this isn't a narrative. This isn't a story. This is not history. This is an epistle. But if one one or two cannot be true and you still can have a, a participle of attendant circumstance, but the one that is of the five characteristics, the one that is least significant is the is the um, is the fifth one as its presence in narrative literature. So what we have in both James one twenty one and in First Peter two one is this exact syntax. You have an aorist participle that precedes an aorist imperative. And that indicates that what, what the writer is saying is first you have to do, you have to lay aside before you can fulfill the, uh, the requirements for the, for the commandment. Now, there's no way that we can morally repair our lives before we take in the word. We would never learn anything. So the only solution here is that this is talking about confession of sin. That's, that's what the prerequisite is. Before you take in the word, you have to clean your life. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the way that we lay aside the filthiness, the excess of wickedness, is to confess sin. We do that first, then we're able to receive with humility the implanted word, the word that is already implanted with us because we're saved, which is able to save our souls. Save your souls is an idiom for saving your life. This is phase two of the Christian life, being saved from the power of sin in your life. And so James doesn't use saved as a synonym for justification. He talks about justification in chapter 2. Saved is talking about the spiritual life. So here we have this same principle. A lot of people have said, well, I don't find confession anywhere except 1 John 1, 9. And that's true. That word confession is only found in describing this there. But we have other passages. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about examining your life. And here we have a grammatical principle indicating that first there has to be a cleansing from sin before you can take in the word. In 1 Peter 1.21, we have this same terminology, apotithemi again, for laying aside. Here, Peter lists specifics. He says, therefore, first, lay aside all malice, all deceit, Now, let me ask you a question. This is part of using reason, the right use of reason in Scripture. Is it possible for a fallen, corrupt sinner to remove all malice and all deceit from your life before you take in the Word? That's not possible. We can't clean it up that much. But God can. So here we have the same structure the same syntax that we have in in James one twenty one, 
laying aside is an aorist participle that precedes the aorist verb, and the aorist imperative verb is the word desire. This is the command. We are to desire the word. We're to thirst for the word. We're to hunger for the word like a newborn baby. Some of you have a little experience with infants recently, and you it's not too much of a stretch of your memory to remember what it's like when a child gets hungry. What happens when a child starts to get hungry? They start screaming for food. They start demanding food. Uh, I've always thought that there's an, a, a bit of a comparison here between um, eating and fasting. If you fast, if you go on a genuine fast, like Jesus was on a genuine fast when he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, that's not unusual. Anybody can do it. That doesn't take any kind of extra miracle power. You may think that it does just because you can't last two hours without food. But once you go past about the second day, your hunger pains, your appetite really goes away. I experienced this. Uh, many years ago when I was on a backpacking, two-and-a-half-week backpacking uh, wilderness uh, expedition up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and the last three days were a solo on the, on the shore of Lake Superior, and we were not to have any food with us. We were scared, scared by our uh, leaders because bears were active in the area, and if people had food with them, the bears could smell it, and you might get attacked by a bear. So don't take anything with you. In fact, just the week before, somebody had been camping there, and the bears had gotten into their packs and uh, torn everything up. But what I experienced on that, and I've read about this, and this is pretty common, is once you get to about the 40th day, your appetite starts to come back pretty fiercely. And you just, you, you, now you have to eat. And so you're just ravenous and you start eating again. And I didn't go that long. We went three days and I was really surprised. I was fairly young at the time and was eating everything that I, that was set in front of me, including the silverware and the bowls and everything else. And I had no thought that I could go 12 hours without anything, much less 36 hours. But we did. And afterwards, we were taken back, and uh, later we, were, we had lunch, and we were all taught how to properly, gradually get into food. And over the next 12 to 24 hours, I ate more than I've ever eaten in a 24-hour period because once your appetite comes back, you're just ravenous. And I think that's a, an analogy. I think well, the reason we have a lot of Christians today who don't want, to, don't want food, they're not demanding See, this word desire, the sincere milk of the word, means that the pe- people in the congregation, spiritual infants, should be demanding of their pastors that they feed them the milk and the meat of the word. But they're not getting it. You get people out there who are being starved to death. They're, they're on a spiritual famine. They've lost their appetite for the word and for truth because they never get it. And so they're just on a starvation diet, and they've lost their appetite. And so we're starving the body of Christ in our generation. What Peter is talking about here, using that graphic analogy of desiring the milk of the word, is that first of all, before you desire it, you have to lay aside this sin. It's the same thing. It's confession of sin. And then you can fulfill the command to desire the pure milk of the word. Another reason I think a lot of Christians are not desiring the milk of the word is they've never been taught anything about confession. They've never been taught anything about 1 John 1, 9. And from the moment they got saved to the present moment, they've just been living mostly in carnality with no idea how to recover. And so this is what we're talking about in these passages is when we're walking by the Spirit, we're walking in the light, and we have to recover so that we can spend a maximum amount of time in fellowship and walking with the Lord. On the other hand, we have this emphasis on identification with Christ, our positional truth, which is the result of our being baptized by the Holy Spirit. So these are the two things we have to keep together, keep in our our mind as we go through these passages. I want you to go back with me to Colossians. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 11. 
We're going to start in verse 11. I went through this in detail when we went through Colossians. In fact, that's where I borrowed these slides. It talks about initially in him, that's our position in Christ, verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, in this case, this isn't talking about literal physical circumcision, but it's using it as a metaphor for what happened at, our, at, at the baptism by the Holy Spirit when we are separated from the tyranny of the sin nature. So this is another way in which the Apostle Paul is describing for his, re- for his readers this break that occurs between the old life and the new life. He says, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So body of the flesh there is talking about the sin nature. So this was a circumcision. How did it take place? That's verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Is that talking about literal water baptism? No. It's talking about that baptism by the Holy Spirit that occurs at the instant of salvation. This is when we're cut off, as it were, where Christ is the moil, circumcises us from the flesh of the sin nature. So he's talking about this positional reality by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ by being buried with him in baptism. So Colossians 2, 11 and 12 is talking about their positional reality. Then when we skip down to verse 20, we skip down to verse 20, Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. When did we die with Christ? We died with Christ when we were identified with this, with his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. So Colossians 2.20 says, if you died, and you did, it's a first-class condition, if you died and you did with Christ, so that's stating the positional reality. And then in Colossians 3.1, he says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... See, he uses those conditional clauses. If you died with Christ, it's talking about baptism by the Holy Spirit. If you've been raised up by Christ, that's the same thing, same passage, Romans 6, 3. And then he says, keep seeking the things above. That's experiential. So he starts off in each of these three, uh, three statements in Colossians 2.20, Colossians 3.1, And Colossians 3.3, he states, he's basically saying, because this is true, this is what happened when you were saved. You were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the tyranny of the sin nature was truly cut off. Now, you may not feel that because that sin nature still has a hold on you, and you still follow it too easily, but the way to break that is to understand the reality that took place at the instant of salvation. In verse 3, Colossians 3, 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life in my life from that instant of salvation is hidden, hidden with Christ in God. It, we can never lose that. That is our identity. That is who we are. But because that identity is true, he goes on to talk about what that means experientially. Therefore, he says, because you have died, verse 5, therefore put to death. You're dead, but now you need to put something to death. It's true positionally, but you still need to make it true experientially. Therefore, he says, uh, consider the members of you, and consider is a word, logizomai, which means thinking. You have to think according to this new reality. You need to consider the members of your earthly body as dead to what? Dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Just one of many sin lists that Paul gives in various passages 
uh, in Scripture. He does the same thing through uh, three pairs that he uses there in, in Romans chapter uh, 13, verse 13. So he goes on to say, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God, that's divine discipline in time, divine judgment in time, because of these things, these sins, that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, that is, characterize those who are characterized by disobedience. The uh, phrase sons of disobedience is a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew idiom. If you are, uh, if you were, uh, if you're Jewish, you spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, you had this kind of an idiom. If you were a robber, you would not be called a robber. You would be called a son of a robber because that, that noun that comes after the son is a, is a description. And when it says you're the son of something, that means you're characterized by that noun. So if you are, uh, if your father's, if you're a murderer, you'd be called a son of a murderer, not because your father was a murderer, but because you're characterized by uh, that word being a murderer. If you are destructive, you'd be called an SOB, a son of Belial, because Belial was known, was a, a demon that was responsible and an idol that was responsible for destruction. So if you are human, you'd be called the son of man. Ezekiel continuously was addressed as the son of man in Ezekiel. Jesus takes on the title as the son of man to emphasize his humanity. That title is used in Daniel 7 and also in the Gospels. If if you're God, Jesus is God, he's called the son of God. The son of doesn't mean that you are a generated product of something. It's just a way they spoke to emphasize uh, that that description. So here he says uh, in verse 6, the sons of disobedience, that just talking about a group of people who are characterized by disobedience to God, could be believers, could be unbelievers. It says, and in them, that is in these sins, verse 7, you also once walked. Walking is a descriptive of of the lifestyle. You once walked when you were living in them, but now, now you have a new identity. But now you, you also put them all aside. So they're already saved. So this doesn't have to do with getting saved. He says, you or yourselves are to put this off. Take this off. It's apatithemi. Again, it is, it's, it's descriptive. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Now here we're not, we don't have the same kind of construction we had in James or in 1 Peter. We're not talking about confession. We're talking about applying the word to our life so that we're no longer characterized by these sins. We are to not commit these sins. We're to remove them from our life so that they don't characterize our lives. He goes on in verse 9 to say, uh, don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. See, at the moment of salvation, that person we were before we were saved, we're not anymore. The old self isn't the old sin nature. The old self is our identity as an unregenerate sinner who could only follow the dictates of the sin nature. He says, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on, there's our word in duo, have put on the new. That's positional. You have put on the new. You have this new identity. You've put on the new self who is being renewed, and that would only be if you're studying the word and applying it, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So in Colossians, we see this distinction between the positional reality that we are a new person, we have positionally laid aside the old self, we've positionally put on the new self, but experientially we have to do that in terms of our our lifestyle. In Galatians 3.27 Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Same word. So it's positional. We put on Christ positionally, but we, according to, um, according to Paul in Colossians 3 and in Romans 13, we now have to put him on experientially as well. 
and when he says put on Christ, this is that same word in duo. So the way that we put on Christ, notice it happens positionally, it happens at, at the same time that we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. But this is not, this is talking about that positional reality that takes place at that instant that we're identified with Christ. So when we take our chart, you have put off the old man and put on the new man. That's that positional reality we have put on Christ by being identified with him. But in Colossians 3 8, which we just went through, we are to uh, put off the, all these various sins and put on uh, the new man, that which characterizes a new man by renewing our soul. So this, these are the same things that we see again and again in Scripture. Uh, Romans 8.12, Therefore, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We've got to stop living. We can't do it completely, but the way we recover when we do is confession of sin, and then we have to stay in fellowship. In Romans 8.13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. See, they're already saved, but you're going to have a death-like existence if you keep living according to the sin nature. But And then he goes on to say, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, how do we have experiential victory over the sin nature? By putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Walking by this is what everybody leaves out when they talk about the mechanics of the Christian life. They're just talking about you go out and morally reform your life, quit sinning, and start do, doing the right thing. But that's just morality. What the Bible is talking about is spirituality. We walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And the only way we can not do this by the flesh is to confess our sins and to walk walk by the Spirit. So... Let's just skip on to back to Romans 13. Paul says, let us walk properly as in the day. Then he describes the improper walk, not in revelry and drunkenness. He has three pairs of terms here, not in lewdness and lust, and each pair's synonyms, not in strife and envy. So these aren't to characterize our lives. He doesn't go on and list as an extensive a list as he does in, in Galatians 5 and and in Colossians 3, but you get the point. And he says, but in contrast, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can say, well, wait a minute. Over in Colossians 3, I already put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that was positional. Here it's experiential. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And that word for provision is a word pra Noia, pra meaning beforehand or ahead of time. Noia related to the word for the mind, the noose, and it means forethought. Don't think ahead of time that, well, I can get away with it. You know, that's what we facetiously refer to as prebound. I'll just confess my sin ahead of time, and then uh, later on I will, um, uh, and then I'll be okay. Uh, rebound being the idea that, like in basketball, when you miss the uh, miss the goal, you can recover and recover the ball is called rebounding. So often that word has been used in imagery for confession. But and then some wag came up with the idea of prebound, where you just confess your sin before you sin, then you'll be okay. That's just licentious. So here we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and not make a provision for the flesh. Don't give yourself an opportunity to sin later on to fulfill its lust. So in a nutshell, what Paul has done here at the end of Romans chapter 13 is to give us a snapshot of the Christian life, that we're to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh, and it's the Holy Spirit, although he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. He does in parallel parallel passages. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we're able to lay aside the deeds of darkness, verse 12, and put on the armor of light several times here, First Thessalonians, and especially Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, Paul expands on this armor imagery. He uses it often to refer to that which protects 
the believer. It's a, it's defensive. You don't defeat the enemy with your armor. You protect yourself from the enemy with your armor. And the only way to do that is to lay aside the deeds of darkness in terms of experiential sanctification and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has to be something that is part of your thoughtful, conscientious approach to day-to-day life. Don't put yourself in a position where you're easy, you will easily succumb to sin and to temptation. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of this great challenge that we have in the Christian life, that we have been given all things in Christ. We have put on Christ. We have a new position. We are children of light. But now we have to live that way. We have to live in a way that is consistent with our new identity. The fact that we are no longer the person we were before we were saved, now we are a new creature in Christ. And the only way we can live this new life is by the Holy Spirit. It is not a difficult life. It's impossible without the aid of God the Holy Spirit. A supernatural life requires a supernatural means for accomplishing that life. Father, challenge us with what we studied this morning in Christ or this evening in Christ's name. Amen.